Years ago, for my brother's wedding, my family and I flew to central California where it hadn't rained for months. Uh, at the time, central California was as dry as a desert and the owners of the Airbnb in which we were staying, they were understandably insistent that we not have any bonfires, right? Don't light any tiki torches, no open flame of any kind. Uh, they even had security cameras to make sure that we weren't doing that, which was oddly creepy, but I understand. <clears throat> because here's the thing, like when it, you know, especially when it's dry, <laughs> fire spreads like fire. <laughs> it's as profound as it gets, right? Fire consumes and destroys and reduces everything to ash and to rubble. And if you'll go with me on this, Genesis 6, our passage this morning, we're gonna see sin having a very similar effect, okay? Back in Genesis chapter three, if you were here with us, you'll remember when Adam and Eve disobediently ate the fruit that God had deemed off limits, they might as well have thrown a match into a parched cornfield because three chapters later, we are only six chapters into the entirety of the biblical story. Three chapters later, Genesis 6, human sin has grown into so ferocious a wildfire. In our passage, God sorrowfully prepares to douse it out himself. Before I read our passage, I wanna give you a heads up we're about to briefly be introduced to a mysterious group of characters called the Nephilim. You've read this. The Bible doesn't tell us much about the Nephilim, but that they were giant warrior men born on the earth, and we're told they were born on the earth after the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives and procreated. Now, tons of ink has been spilled by scholars trying to get to the bottom of who the Nephilim were and who the sons of God were who procreated them. We simply don't know with certainty. Some suggest that the sons of God, whom we're about to read about, who fathered the Nephilim, some suggest that they were actually godly human descendants of Seth, whom we read about last week in chapter five, and this theory proposes that the godly descendants of Seth went wrong when they took ungodly wives from the lineage of Cain. And because of this, sin and corruption increased. That's one theory. Another theory is that the sons of God, we're about to read about them, they fathered the Nephilim. These sons of God were actually fallen angels, demons who had inhabited human men the same way that Satan had inhabited the serpent in the garden. As a result, the Nephilim who were born were supernaturally strong, big, and they were very wicked. I'm actually inclined toward that theory, but I don't know. And I'm open to your thoughts. Take me out for coffee, you buy, as always, and we'll chat. But here's the reason why 
I highlight this right now. Look, we're probably never, this side of glory, we're probably never getting it to the actual bottom of who the Nephilim were or who the sons of God were. But by God's grace today, we will get to the bottom of the main message of Genesis chapter six, of the point of this, right? And so here's the invitation we're about to read. Join me, follow along, join me in listening for the overarching themes that give shape to this part of the story, all right? And Father, we ask and trust that you will speak to us through the reading of your word right now in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter six. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out men whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But... I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. 
It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Speed to God. As is the case with every passage of Scripture we open on a Sunday morning, there are so many ways we might outline this and dissect Genesis chapter 6, but for the remainder of our time, we'll make three observations if you're a note taker. Number one, God's sadness for sin. Two, God's severity towards sin. Three, God's sustenance despite sin. Number one, God's sadness for sin. In verses five and six, we're told that as the Lord God looked out upon the earth, he'd wonderfully made what he saw was tremendous human wickedness. What he's seeing here, you know, he's, he saw Ken's descendants. He saw the Nephilim who are possibly being animated by demonic spirits. The level of wickedness the Lord sees in the second half of verse five is striking. Look at it with me. Every intention and thought within human hearts was only evil continually. My goodness. Constant corruption overflowing from the cisterns of human hearts. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, lies, lust, murder, greed, injustice, abuse, abandonment, rivalry, malice, mayhem, and all of these symptoms, the results of the, of the one true underlying sin. Man has turned from God and worshiped himself. Verse six, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is the first account of a heart level grief in scripture. All right, Cain was upset about the consequences of his sin. Adam was blaming Eve, and Eve was was blaming the serpent. Here we have sorrowed regret, and it's not felt by man. It's, It's felt by our sinless God. Now, God is spirit. We know that. He doesn't have a physical heart such as ours, but in order that we might better understand and relate with the pain he is experiencing, he is described as broken hearted. He is grieved by man's unbridled sin and he regrets creating man. Now, theologian Ken Matthews helped me and helps us to understand that God's regret here is not a sorrow for creating something he shouldn't have. God was not wrong in making man. In fact, his making of man was very good. It's what man has willfully made of himself that sorrows God and fills him with regret. 
In verses 11 and 12, we are told again, the earth was tail spinning into corruption. That's my paraphrase. It was filled with violence because all flesh had corrupted their way and God was grieved. God is grieved by sin. God's heart is broken. Every time I think and speak and act in ways that are contrary to his design for me. And he's grieved every time you do the same. When I would disobey my parents as a kid, I was always rightly punished. My dad's here, thank you dad. (laughs) But no consequence for my disobedience was ever quite as alarming as as the look of grief on my dad's face and my mom's face, it killed me. When we gossip, when we hoard treasures and possessions for ourselves, when we lust after others or we degrade them with physical, emotional, and spiritual abuses, picture this with me because it's true. God hangs his head in sorrowful grief as if someone he loved has died. It's the level of pain. He puts his hands over his face and he weeps. Picture this with me. I know this is all anthropomorphic, right? We're giving him attributes and traits. God is spirit. He doesn't have hands, but you get what I'm saying. And and picturing God in his grief for sin, it, it should bring about two things. And I hope it does in each of us. I hope it brings about a sense of comfort And I hope that it brings us about a sense of deep conviction. It should comfort us to know that God, in his grief, he will not overlook the unjust wrongs that have been committed against us. He won't do it. Justice will be served. And it will be served by him personally. But God's sadness for sin, the look of grief upon his face, should convict us of our own conduct. Here's a cheesy illustration. Picture God as a builder of a beautiful apartment complex. Just after he finishes all of his work, he opens the doors free of charge to hundreds of tenants. Now picture those tenants while the builder watches them all begin to inhabit what he's built for them, watch them all, imagine them all coming together, the ribbon cutting ceremony has barely finished, and then all the tenants begin to set fire to the building. Now imagine yourself, you're there, and you notice a portion of the building that is yet to burn, so you grab a lighter and some gasoline, and you make sure that it is set ablaze. This example is actually extreme, yes, I understand that, But this is our sin each and every time we think and speak and act in a way that is contrary to God's design for us. We are setting a blaze to an already existing wildfire and it pains him as if someone is dying. We feed the wildfire of sin every time 
every time I sin. And my prayer for me and for us is that the thought of this, just even the thought of this might deter us from sinning. When we are about to slander another human being made in the image of God, when we are about to mistreat or even misspeak to our spouse, when we're about to neglect or to lash out at our children, when we are about to walk right past a person in dire need, may we be struck by the image of our grieving God that it might spare us from sinning that we might walk in the righteous ways that he has designed for us, the joy-inducing, life-giving ways that he has designed for us. May we also be struck by this second observation, point number two from Genesis 6, God's severity towards sin. He is severe towards sin. His righteous sadness for sin informs his righteous severity towards sin. In verse seven, the earth has now been so polluted by man's sin that God is going to blot them out. He is going to wipe clean. He is going to remove mankind from the earth. And just as God's curse for, for Adam's sin, God cursed the ground for Adam's sin, so here creatures will again suffer the repercussions of human sin. In verse 13, God tells Noah, whom we'll talk about in a moment, I have determined to make an end of all flesh because mankind has filled the earth with such violence, I will destroy them along with the earth. And then in verse 17, God tells Noah how he will do this. I will bring a flood of waters, God says, to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth will die. And lest we think that God is overreacting. Ken Matthews writes this, the sins of Noah's generation have become so monstrous that the gravest of measures is the only proper response from heaven. What God had made very good has been irreparably distorted by sin. So we need to see what scripture is so clearly depicting for us right here. You've heard this before, but hear it afresh. God hates your sin. And he hates mine. He hates it. He is righteous and sin of every kind is a blatant perversion of righteousness. He hates sin and I'm gonna go somewhere Follow me into the deep end here for a second. He hates sin and there is a sense in which God hates those who willingly give themselves to sin. He hates sinners. In Psalm 5, 5 and 6, King David says of God, and the, the, the Psalms are littered with this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, O Lord. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. He hates him. Now, are there passages of scripture 
chock full of the wondrous, merciful, the, 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 the love that God has for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, yes. But we hold that on one hand because there is also a sobering sense where God is justifiably hating blatant sinners giving themselves to transgression. Passages like Psalm 5, like I've just read, those passages are easier for me to accept when it comes to the genocidal figures of history like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot, right? I hate what those men did. And I'm comforted that God's just wrath is burning and will be poured out on them. I'm comforted by that. The psalmist agrees in Psalm 139. We're okay. There is a righteous anger to hate the sin of men. The, discar the discomforting part for me, you ready to be invited into this with me? The discomforting part is that I have repeatedly, willfully contributed to the wildfire of sin. Over and over and over and over again, even after coming to Christ, I still scorn his blood. In my selfishness, in my arrogance, in my greed, in my gossip, in my lust, in and of my own thoughts, words, and actions, I have made myself an enemy of God. I have broken his heart, I have stirred his anger, and I love you, so have you. And the thing that should strike us here in Genesis chapter six and just right here in real time in this room, God doesn't have to tolerate our degradation of his good creation. In Genesis six and today, he would be utterly justified to pull the plug on the whole human operation of life on earth and he would not be lacking in one way if he were to pull the plug because within his own triune self is already eternally existing wholeness, fullness, goodness, glory, love, fellowship, communication, exaltation, and total joy. He has this in and of himself. To bear with me and to put up with my crap is sheer grace. He does not need to forbear us nor sustain us any more than he needed to create us to begin with. And yet, out of the abundance of his sheer goodness, here is the next thing we see in Genesis chapter six. Number three, God's sustenance despite sin. He sustains life despite sin. In verse eight, read this profoundly with me, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The whole earth is unhinged with moral corruption, but Noah, what did he do? Well, he found favor. And that word favor can just as rightly be translated grace. And if you've been in church for two seconds, hopefully you've heard the definition of grace. It's actually unmerited favor. Follow me on this. Noah, 
Is God's appointed descendant of Seth, we're told in verse 9, that Noah did possess a righteousness and a blamelessness in his generation that is compared to his peers. He walked uprightly in his generation. His life was patterned with obedience to God, but Noah was not sinless. We're going to see this in high death in chapter 9. The dude has sinned. The dude has fallen short of the perfect righteous standard and glory of God. Even though he was righteous in comparison to his generation, what does he need? He still needs to be saved by God here from the wrath of God that would soon pour out over the earth. And marvel with me for a second that God was willing to spare anyone, anyone from the impending waters of the flood. It's all, it sings of his graciousness. In verses 14 through 16, more songs of God's graciousness as God gives Noah some very detailed instructions. He's to build an ark, a large covered vessel. Here's some rough math, roughly 440 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high, sealed with pitch, fashioned with, fashioned with very buoyant gopher wood. In verses 19 through 21, God gives Noah more gracious details and instructions, this time pertaining to food, as well as to the animals that he is to salvage by bringing them on board, male and female. Here's the point. Verses 14 through 21 are dripping with mercy. All of this detailed instruction because God is not going to do away with all of life on account of sin, though he would be completely justified in doing so. Instead, he is going to sustain life despite sin. Glory. Wickedness will be swept away and God will personally ensure that a people of his choosing will enter a new age. Listen to God's words to Noah in verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. Theologian Ken Matthews comments on this. This proclamation of God, this first formal covenant ratified by God is not some sort of agreement. The Lord is obligating himself to save Noah and his family. And the result of which is the second half of verse 18. And you shall come into the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives. I love how chapter 6 ends with verse 22. God, give me one semblance and shred of this obedience. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Hallelujah. The ancient Israelites who were the first people to hear the book of Genesis, the first to receive this biblical story, they were no strangers to God's preservation of a people. Absolutely no strangers. There has always and will ever always be a remnant of individuals saved by God's sheer grace. 
such as Noah and his family right here. If we were to keep reading the biblical story, we would see it time and time and time and time again. God is in the business of unmeritably favoring glory. I am in that number. At the end of Revelation, we would read, at the end of the biblical story, the book of Revelation, we would read sobering, this sobering promise. It won't be with a flood. We'll get to that later, but God will once again sweep away the wicked from this earth. It is going to happen. But once again, another vessel of grace has been provided to men. And it informs our communion meal that we're about to take. A truer and better ark, a better covenant ratified by blood. This is what the Lord's Supper points us to and reminds us of. The Christ, the Messiah, the perfect, obedient, spotless, righteous Son of God, born on the earth, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, the covenant that ratifies and a fountain of blood pours forth. No more flood water, but blood falls down. And for those who, by repentant faith, are in that fount of blood, our sins are atoned for. There is no condemnation. And the coming trepidatious wrath of God that has been stored up and is being stored up against sin and all ungodliness that is going to be unveiled. We, like the ancient Israelites who painted blood over the doorway, we who are under the blood of Christ will be spared and entered into eternal bliss with the Father and the Son and the Spirit forever. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is for men and women who have been cut to the heart by this gospel message. Men and women who are capable of self-examination and discernment as we are commanded with regard to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. And that means now that we prepare men and women of God to enjoy and to remember the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood, we must be asking ourselves, am I truly turning from my sin? Am I truly trusting in the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God? Am I truly striving to obey God's word and to put on the righteousness of Christ that already dawns me? Am I truly stewarding my time and talent and money for the glory of God? Am I truly contributing to the edification of this local church the way God commands me? Do we see how communion, the Lord's Supper, is intended for those who are capable of understanding and entering into church membership type relationships with one another? capable of coming together in true unity despite our disagreements with one another. And if we were to start just voicing our opinions on all of life right now, oh my goodness, a civil war might break out, but not in Christ, no. We have a Mount Everest of commonality in Christ. If you are capable, brother or sister, 
And if you are prepared to take of the bread and cup in a worthy manner, then after I pray, I would invite you to come forward. But church, hear this and remember this with me before we take of the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a sensory meal, right? Remember weeks ago, we were talking about the Lord's Supper and talked about, you know, whenever I eat spaghetti, it transplants me. It transports me to a different time and place and all of a sudden, memories start floating to the surface. Look, as you taste this bread this morning, believer, remember that as real as that bread is in your mouth, so real is the fact that the Son of God became a man and gave up his body for you that you might have eternal life. As you taste the bitter sweetness of the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sins forgiven which came at a very bitter cost to Jesus, whose blood was poured out for you. If we could, 10 seconds, zoom out and look at Genesis one through six with me so far. The essence of sin is that man has substituted himself for God but the essence of salvation that we're about to remember repentantly and celebrate, the essence of salvation is that God has substituted himself for man. May we come when we do with joyful, hopeful, confident repentance We've all contributed to the wildfire of sin. May our repentance serve in, in, a, in a way like a big gold bucket of water that just douses by the grace of God, by the blood that flows from Jesus' veins. Let's do this together in a spirit of joy and celebration and repentance, and then we'll sing. Pray with me. Holy Father, you are utterly holy through and through. And I am so often belligerently unholy. I sin as is easy as I breathe. My thoughts, words, and deeds just flow out of the sinfulness of my own heart without rarely a thought. Oh Lord, would you forgive me and any of my brothers and sisters who can relate, would you forgive me for not always even recognizing that I need forgiveness? That I presume upon your grace day after day after day? That I hear the gospel that I read of it in my Bible reading every day and every weekend we celebrate and sing and talk about it with our kids, but oh Lord, how often I scorn the good news of free grace in Jesus Christ and I am sorry and I'm not nearly as sorry as I ought to be, so I'm sorry for that and I pray, Lord, for your forgiveness over all of us. God, would you cleanse and wash our consciences as much as our guilty hands? And Lord, would we approach the Lord's table 
ready to participate in a sensory meal that takes us to this place that we know, oh Lord, in Christ, we are washed as white as snow. And it it caused great sorrow to you. But to great joy in this place, Lord, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Help us to believe that and to take you upon your word and to celebrate with great joy as we sing, as we listen to the man of sorrows. We take in a spirit of repentance and confidence and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.